Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 83 of The Leadership Window. Glad to have you along. Got a great episode today, just really digging into leadership itself. Um, We have a lot of different kinds of specialties sometimes on the show, and I love the episodes where we can just talk about leadership, and it can kind of go all over the place. We've got uh, a unique expert with a unique uh, assessment on leadership that we're going to talk to in just a few moments. Before we do, I just want to share something with you that I picked up this morning. I didn't pick it up. I think it was kind of a reminder to me. I just started reading, uh, you probably have heard of it or seen it at an airport or somewhere, the book, This Subtle Art of Not Giving a You-Know-What, Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. And uh, it's by Mark Manson. And I've been seeing this book for a while now and going, well, you know, that's really a crude title. I don't know. This guy's probably some arrogant jerk and, you know, he does have an interesting story when you when you look at him, but the book itself had read some reviews and thought, man, I don't know. It's it, it there's a lot of profanity in the book. I mean, he drops the f bomb over and over and over and over. It's just kind of his style. If you can filter through that and and you know be be comfortable just kind of hearing what it is he has to say, it is actually really really powerful stuff, and it probably is not what you think it is. The title of the book uh, probably does not lead you to the place you think it does if you haven't read it. Anyway, um, I was uh, reading some of it this morning. Actually, I was listening to the Audible book um, while at the gym. Yay me. Um, (laughs) It's it's 20, what are we, nine days into 2023. I'm doing pretty good on the on the new year stuff. But he made a statement in the book. I don't I don't think he claimed it to be original, but it just stuck with me. And he was talking about how we're all responsible for ourselves. And I believe that I've been preaching that and I coach on that. We're all responsible for ourselves. We make our own choices. Um, we're responsible for our, our happiness, our fulfillment, our contribution, all of that. But he, he made the statement of, you know, when you tell someone they're responsible for everything in their lives, people will often say, well, wait a minute, I'm not responsible for the trauma that I experienced last year. You know, I'm not, I'm not responsible uh, for the loss of my spouse or my child or, you know, that horrible experience that we had. I'm not responsible for that. I'm a victim of that. Or uh, the illustration he uses is if someone comes to your doorstep and leaves a baby at your doorstep, you wake up the next morning, you open your door to go out to, you know, get a newspaper. If you still subscribe to a printed newspaper and there's this baby on your front porch, Well, you didn't do that. You didn't ask for it. It's not your fault. But guess what? You now have a responsibility. You got to figure something to do. You can't just close the door and go, "Eh, not my problem. I didn't put it there. So what he says is that people will say, well, that's not my fault. And that people often confuse fault with responsibilities. That you can have things in your life that are not your fault, but they're still, you are still responsible for how you respond and react and move forward. And here's the statement he made that I just want to pass along to you before we get to uh, our good friend, uh, Robert Jordan. 
He says, fault, think about it this way. Fault is about the past. Responsibility is about the future, the present and the future. So fault is, you know, you say, well, it's not my fault. You were talking about something that has already happened. I had a trauma. I had a difficulty. My board fired me, whatever. It's not my fault. And some, it's somebody's fault. And okay, maybe. Although he also makes the point that we are often more at fault than we want to admit. But let's say we're not. It's not our fault. Fault is something that happened in the past. The question now is, whose responsibility is it? And if we just say, well, it's the responsibility of whoever's fault it is. Well, that might be fine, but the person who dropped the baby at your doorstep is not going to suddenly show back up and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to take responsibility of that for you. You've got to do something. And there are things that are put in our lives and we are responsible for how we handle them. So I just wanted to pass that along. It was just inspiring the way he put fault in the past and responsibility in the future. So as we think about leadership with Robert Jordan here today, let's think about our responsibility as it relates to the content that he's going to share with us, because it's really fascinating content. Robert Jordan is our guest today. He's the CEO of Interim Execs, and that's a company that matches top executives with companies around the world, by the way. And um, we're going to get to a book that he and Olivia Wagner wrote. But before we do, let me mention a couple of other things. He is the author of How They Did It, Billion Dollar Insights from the Heart of America. And he also helped publish Start With No, uh, which is Jim Camp's bestseller on negotiation. Today, we're going to focus a big part of our conversation on the book, Right Leader, Right Time. I love that title, Right Leader, Right Time, Discover Your Leadership Style for a Winning Career and Company. He and Olivia Wagner, who wrote this book, launched the FABS Leadership Assessment, F-A-B-S. That's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, you can get a free assessment, take a look at FABS and as it relates to you at rightleader.com which is uh, this assessment and website is designed to help leaders and organizations perform better, which is what we all want to do. And uh, Bob reached out to us on the show and said, Hey, I think your show about leadership is something that um, I think we've got something that might resonate with your leaders. We talked a couple of weeks ago and I said, man, absolutely. Let's do that. And so uh, all the way from the West coast today, visiting out there is Robert Jordan. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. I've been looking forward to this episode. Welcome. Thanks, Patrick. You know, I need I need you to go into every meeting with me. That was a phenomenal introduction. Thank you. Hey, you know, I just uh, read what I got. <laughs> but no, I it it I having talked with you just just even briefly, I can really see this. I'm interested in some things that we may not even have time on the show for. Um, we'll talk a little bit about it. I want to. I definitely want to learn more about the company, Interim Execs. So you I, you and I talked about a an episode that we had on recently, I had Colleen Bozard who works in the nonprofit sector with me. And Colleen is a professional interim executive. She helps organizations during these times of transition and comes in and serves as an interim CEO or interim executive director for nonprofits. And we talked all about the unique dynamic of interim leadership. I'm really wanting to know a little bit more about interim execs and what your experiences are. Of course, you're not just in the nonprofit sector. In fact, I don't know if you deal with the nonprofit sector much at all, but you can talk about that. So I am interested in interim execs and what you do. And, and, um, but I, I definitely want to talk about the book. I have it. I haven't had it for long, so I haven't gotten all the way through it yet. 
but um, it's my kind of read. It's uh, my kind of content. I love it. It's um, it's it's thought provoking. It's it's uh, a simple framework. It's not a difficult, you know, high academic book to read. And I, which I like, I like the, I get this. Um, and I love the, the, the ease with which this framework flows. So yeah, looking forward to it. I'm just going to open it up to you for, for a minute and just, you know, tell us about a little more about yourself and tell us about interim execs. And then we'll, we'll get into the book a little bit later. Thanks, Patrick. So yeah, the book, Right Leader, Right Time, comes out of all this work we've been doing at Interim Execs over many years. Um, as the name implies, we are an organization that's a matchmaker. Um, organizations from around the world show up. They can be for-profits, non-profits, public-private, but they have some kind of leadership need. And so if we can, we're acting as a matchmaker to bring in an exceptional leader or team. So in the process of doing that over the past decade, about 7,000 executives showed up on our doorstep, if you will, from 50 countries. And, you know, you, you get that kind of thing going, you have to develop systems and process. And, and we did in the process of developing ranking and scoring and screening of executives, um, there were some really stark findings um, there was there was both the negative side, which is the majority of executives. We would describe their leadership journeys as okay, but not exceptional. And then if you look at the top two, three, four percent, these are incredible leaders. And we saw these patterns we called leadership style, four different distinct leadership styles that were leading to success, but they were very, very different. And so that not only fueled how we were making matches, but this idea that we had to get the word out to the world, which is why we wrote the book. So I'm curious as to the name interim execs though. So a matchmaker finding executive directors or CEOs of, of companies is one thing. Why the term interim execs? Do you specialize in, in matching up interim people while companies are in the search for permanent CEOs? It's a great question whether you, I don't even think interim is, is a perfect word. We, we've stuck with it, but whether you want to describe this as project interim contract fractional, there is now this career calling around the world that there are needs for leadership that are different from engaging in a permanent search. And I could give you lots of compelling reasons why that is the case. Um, in a way, we shouldn't be surprised because this, you could almost draw a straight line from 30, 40 years ago, when a lot of businesses in the US and Western Europe started outsourcing lower level functions around the world, right? So call centers uh, started moving to India and parts of Asia. And you keep on going and now it starts hitting the C-suite, nonprofits and for-profit corporations for example, in the finance function. So that the CFO role was probably the first one to become projectized. And the benefits are, are huge. For example, you can be at a small organization that never could afford a full-time permanent chief financial officer. Well, now you don't have to. Now, you know, you can have a part-time or fractional resource helping you strategically with finances but you don't have to pay them full-time. They don't need to be there all of the time. They can supervise a bookkeeper or controller. 
and you get all of the benefits, not all of the cost. That resonates. And we see a lot of it in the nonprofit sector. Um, it's increasing right now. Nonprofits who are figuring out, particularly in this challenging time of finding good talent and uh, retaining full-time talent, we are seeing a trend toward more outsourcing. And it makes sense to most of our listeners probably to think about outsourcing, uh, you know, HR, uh, outsourcing IT, outsourcing finance, even outsourcing on a project basis resource development, or which is our fancy word for fundraising, uh, you know, outsourcing grant writing, outsourcing event management. What about though outsourcing the CEO role? Is that something you're helping organizations do? Is that what I'm hearing that you're helping organizations to make sort of a non-traditional innovative way of getting executive leadership without having a staffed full-time executive chief executive officer in the traditional sense? That answer is an absolute yes. <laughs> and it, it's funny because we, my background and my business partner and co-author Olivia Wagner, we didn't come from a nonprofit um, right. background, mm -hmm. but when we first turned on this service, the, the, the shorthand name at interim execs is red team. Red stands for rapid executive deployment. Mm. And about 10 years ago, we kind of cracked the code where we had critical mass. We had enough phenomenal executives around the world that we said, okay, we, we can do this. We can be this kind of rapid reaction force. We hadn't anticipated that nonprofits were going to call us, and it is absolutely trending to be the number one um, uh, source of both ma matches for us from inbound organizations who are nonprofits um, and executives who are specializing in this. And that absolutely includes the CEO or executive director role to give you some examples of that, um, for example, you can have a nonprofit that essentially has a founder, right? Well, that person can do a great job building an organization over a span of decades. At some point, as that organization becomes bigger and more successful, that first executive director is going to want to retire. They're going to want to leave. And that's a tough role to fill. And more and more organizations will turn to an interim uh, executive director while they are engaging in a search. You know, as you know, because Patrick, you're you're the guy, you're the expert at all of this, but that search process um, for nonprofits uh, is, that that's not trivial. You know, most organizations going through a change in leadership at executive director, CEO, president, however you want to call that, that's going to be a process I mean, the the engagements we've had, it tends to average about nine months. It can be longer than a for-profit business by far. And in that gap, you don't you don't have to lose momentum. You don't have to lose your leadership anymore. I'm wondering about the size of the organizations and how the different sizes of organizations approach this differently. Because I don't disagree really with anything you've said there, everything you just said, I'm going, yep, I've seen that. I've seen that. I've seen that with the exception of the, the, you know, the nine months and longer that it takes to find that role. Unfortunately, in my experience, and maybe that's because I, I tend to deal more with the medium sized nonprofits, not a lot of the big global, you know, uh, Oxfam America and those kinds of organizations. I've done some with the international work, but 
in the small to medium organizations, unfortunately, what I find is boards want to get through. They rush the process because they hate the process. I, you know, you, I don't know if you've heard the episode with Colleen, but you know, I was telling Colleen that uh, aside from, you know, some forensic audit or fraud taking place in an organization, the number one thing a board dreads is the resignation of their CEO and the, the requirement that they're now going to have to go out and fill this position. Oh man, we got to get a search firm. We got to create a search committee of the board. And I've seen it many, many times where boards will settle in order to get the process done because they don't like doing it. These are volunteers that work in companies of their own. They got their own stuff to deal with. They didn't, they kind of feel like they didn't sign up for this, even though they did when they volunteered to be on a board. And so they rushed through the process. I, I wish I could see more organizations taking nine months to a year to fill the role, but it just hasn't been my experience. Is that because of the maybe the size of organizations that I tend to uh, work with more often? Are you seeing these in the larger organizations that take longer? Well, first of all, I think we're, we're pretty much like you. We don't tend to see the largest nonprofits in the world show up. They could, mm-hmm. it tends to be more middle-sized to smaller. And that actually mirrors um, for-profit um, commercial companies. You don't tend to see, um, the specialty of interim or fractional going in so much into like the fortune 500 largest corporations in the world, it tends to play more into what everybody calls the middle market yeah. or the lower middle market. Um, the one, the one thing it touched on because we've now had so many nonprofit organizations show up that I can relate to is, is the board dealing with boards of nonprofits is distinctly different from dealing with for-profit boards. And, um, We've learned a lot from the executives uh, we work with who specialize in nonprofits that uh, some are great um, and some of them, oh my gosh, they need they need some education and help in terms of governance. I, I think mostly coming from good intentions, but as you said, because they're volunteering, um, you know, they want to see things go well, but they're also doing things that are completely out of character with the way that, for example, a for-profit board operates. We, we could do one show just on that. Yeah, we, well, um, we could. We could do several shows on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. We and this just... is one of the things, that this is something where executives really need to take note that, for example, there are a lot of executives who have a for-profit background and they think, oh, sure, I could step into a nonprofit. Yeah. Uh, no problem. I'm great at, at management. But y- you don't understand. This has become its own specialty because – because in the world of nonprofits, the way those organizations tend to work and based on culture and all of that, it's just, it's not the same. It's not the same. Not, no, it, not, not at all. I mean, you know, there's always the debate about is a nonprofit a business? I'm on the side of it absolutely is, you know, it, it's a business in all the ways that, that a business is a business, but it is a very, very different business with a very, very different structure and leadership and cultural dynamic. And, and that circles back to my, again, my original question. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in hearing may, maybe an example of or two where this has been highly effective, where you have projectized, as you said it, I don't know if that's a real word, but it is now because Bob Jordan said it was, 
um, that you've projectized uh, the CEO role. Give me an example of what that looks like, because I'm I'll be honest, I'm struggling with that concept. I'll tell you why in a minute in particular, but give me an example or two of when that's really worked out for an organization and how that might look. Sure. So one example would be the Tourette Association of America. Um, the founder of the organization had been there for a couple decades and was really anxious to retire. Um, that, you know, that level of comfort and kind of entrenched leadership, that's a very hard transition for everyone to make, both the team. Um, I think there are about 30 staffers and uh, a board. And so that was a perfect use case for bringing in an interim executive. Um, and it worked great. And it, it did parallel in that case, a professional search that was going on for the next um, executive. But there were things that needed to be worked on and fixed. In the meantime, while that search was going on, the organization was doing okay, but it, it had lost um, some of its momentum. Um, that's one example. Uh, another one um, that we worked on, you, you know, in every major city around the world, there's an eye bank. I mean, like corneal tissue, eyes, real life, you know, your eyes. And, and uh, that tissue, you know, when someone passes, you can use that tissue for somebody else. So it's vital that the tissue get moved around um, where patients are and where it's needed. There's a consortium in the U.S. of eye banks, and that consortium had gone into disarray. It's kind of interesting, you know, because because in in every major city there's one or two eye banks, and and those are like fiefdoms, the people that run those organizations. That's it. They're they're it. Well, the consortium which was responsible for transferring eye tissue around the U.S. and around the world, they that organization itself kind of fell into disarray. And so that was a perfect case for bringing in an interim CEO to uh, impose uh, some order out of the chaos they were experiencing. So I might, I might not be understanding fully and I apologize when you, again, when you use the word interim CEO, I totally get that. That is, that is, you know, a, a founder has left or any CEO has left and the organization, I mean, you still got to lead, you still got to do things and you have an interim, but historically, or I think the way everyone understands the framework of an interim is it is very temporary while a search is conducted and a full-time permanent CEO is hired. I guess what I'm asking you is, are you, are you working with organizations to help them outsource the CEO role on any kind of semi-permanent to permanent basis? Uh, good question. No, it's not a, it's not a permanent kind of uh outsource because that, that's what, what it is seen. with the others right with it and hr and marketing and i mean we you know organizations say we outsource that stuff like that's the way we do it it's it's not temporary we might change consultants or whatever but that's an outsourced sort of thing but what you're talking well, about you, yeah yeah i mean you know if you use the word fractional so a smaller organization that needs a fractional CFO, they need a CFO one day a week or for mm -hmm. five hours yeah. a month, you know, then they can do that for years. And as the organization grows, it's fine for everybody. And at some point it gets big enough and it needs a full-time yeah. 
head of finance, CFO, whatever you want to call that person, well, then the fractional person is going to rotate out. Maybe maybe they're the ones that help recruit the permanent person. Mm. Uh, but that can look somewhat permanent over a span of years. Most of what occurs with leadership resources that are interim, um, it, it and it's not necessarily, Patrick, that it's, that it's matched up with recruitment the full way along. I mean, we've, we've been uh, in engagements that lasted four years, and there are a lot of people in permanent roles that never make it four years. Mm-hmm. So it very much depends on what are the needs of the organization. Yeah. Um, there's a, there, though, is a form of professionalism here for people who have taken this as their career calling, right? That this is their their career is they want to be project based executives. They're not between permanent jobs. Yeah. Um. And and the form of professional here professionalism here calls for the fact that if, for example, the engagement is supposed to be three months, well, it better be three months and not a day longer. I mean, that's the way we define this. And if, for example, it needs to run two years, it better not go a day less than two years. We can't have that executive saying, oh, gee, I saw something more interesting. Can't do that. Okay. You have to stay on post. All right. And it, so with that explanation, I think, I think we are, I think I am closer. We are closer to the same sort of concept of interim execs in the, in that sense. So that makes sense. Cause I'm, I'm sitting here thinking for the small to medium nonprofit and certainly the large ones too, but community-based nonprofits, the CEO or the executive director of those organizations more than anything is the face of the organization. It's the relationship builder. Many boards in fact, are basically calling their CEOs, their chief development officer with a different title. It's the person who needs to know people get out there, move and shake they need to again, be the face of the organization and an interim can only carry that so far, particularly if they are from outside the community. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. And, and I would also say there are other distinctions in, in executives between those serving nonprofits and, and in for-profit roles. And one of the big ones is fundraising. Yeah. So a lot of, of executives who specialize in are drawn to nonprofit, they, they'll be very upfront, which is they're not the chief fundraiser coming in. Yeah. That's a really special, um, uh, ability and you're absolutely right on that. Yeah. And, and, and it's really important that they communicate that with, uh, in no uncertain terms, because the boards, re- that's their number one thing. Right? Got to raise money. Who's going to keep the money coming in? You know, if, the, if this process is going to last nine months to a year, I think of United Way, for example, where I spent a couple of decades uh, in that network, you know, United Way runs this annual fundraising campaign and more and more United Ways now are doing it year round. You know, you can't just take nine months to a year and have the organizational leadership just focus on sort of keeping things together. You still have to get out there and build those relationships and raise those funds. You know, those organizations have to, you know, reproduce those funds every single year. And that that is becoming that that's such a, a big demand. I remember when I got out of the network, launched my coaching business for a while I was expressing interest in maybe staying in the network, coming back, maybe getting another CEO role. And one of the leaders in the United way network said, are you sure you want to do that? And I said, why? Because more and more the boards are just looking for, you know, chief development officers on steroids. 
And that's yeah. becoming more and more what, what the boards are looking for. But anyway, I, I digress a little yeah. bit. Of, of, well, a little the, bit it's that. a great example. We, we, for example, the United Way of, of Chicago, we had the CFO in there for a while. But that was understood by everybody that that was the operational component of finance and accounting. Right. And, and nobody was under any illusion that bringing somebody in for six months, I think it was six, seven months, uh, to the CFO role was that that person was going to be in charge of fundraising. There right. was no way. Right, right, right. No, that's no. right. Um, I and- wonder, I, I think more and more actually that, that as you, you know, we, we've just crossed the point of maximum uh, this, this retirement curve for baby boomers, right? There are a lot of, of baby boomers who've, who've hit retirement age, including a lot of owners of companies, but it doesn't mean that they're old. They're not old. And I wonder if we're going to see maybe some uptick in uh, executives going into nonprofit work who will be great at fundraising because in their for-profit careers, owning companies or managing them, that's what they excelled at. I'm kind of hoping that's the case, that we're going to see, we're going to see a trend that way. Well, that would help. Uh, you know, I was just on a call this morning uh, with um, some of the consultants in the nonprofit space here in South Carolina, and we were looking at a compensation study. And, and you know, without going into any of the sort of confidential aspects of the study here in South Carolina alone, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it was close to two thirds of the executive directors of nonprofits in South Carolina report their intention to retire sometime in the next two years. Wow. I mean, that is, you talk about the need for a pipeline and fast. Yeah. So, so while, uh, you know, I I, I have to say, sorry for interrupting you. I have to say that this is something I'm a little bit, we have so much work in nonprofits. I'm a little bit on a mission here. Hmm. Um, Part of it is my family thinks I'm crazy because I, I say I'm never going to retire. I'm, I'm just, my wiring is why would I ever want to do that? Yeah. I'm, I'm doing what I love. This is my calling. And uh, so I don't ever want to stop. Well, you know, when we, we talk to these company owners or executives thinking about um, specializing in, in interim or fractional work, um, I feel like uh, being more educational, if you will, with a number of these folks, because it's like, you know, you hit age 60, come on, life expectancy, you're going to be around a long time. And to think that all this expertise you built up, that, that it just goes away. I mean, what a shame, what a waste. And, and even if for a lot of those for-profit executives, you're not going to become a full-on executive director of a nonprofit, got that. But at least your expertise when it comes to fundraising, if that's, if you're really great at selling and pitching, boy, if you could turn that on, if you find an organization that, that thrills you and you love their mission, um, you, you get, uh, well, David Brooks, you know, you were mentioning Patrick, the other book, I'll bring one up. David Brooks, the book, second mountain. Um, you know, he talks about first mountain is the point in your career where it's all about, uh, gaining status and power and money. And it, those are necessary things. Um, he phrases second mountain as the point at which it becomes about meaning and significance. And, and I think or hope it is possible um, 
that there are a lot of people out there that that could be uh, looking at how to help organizations that are not just trying to make a profit. I think so. As long as there are people like you and and some other entities who are making that path easy, you know, the, where there's resources for retirees, for example, they can find those opportunities easily. I was talking with a, um, a professional at Clemson University here in South Carolina, uh, who they're hosting a regional conference on learning post-retirement. That's the conference. And what they're trying to do is get people who have retired or semi-retired to make sure that they know what's next for them in a way that's going to bring significance. And Ron Harvey was on the show recently and talking about his, his new book, which is all about from success to significance. And the way it kind of hit me was success is sort of about what we get and significance is more about what we give. And when we make that shift, and this is a leadership principle, not just a life and career principle, when we make that shift from this isn't about me, it's about others. And that's what brings the fulfillment. And that's what fuels the energy and creates significance that that's when that's when the real magic happens. But for people who don't know how to engage post-retirement, we need things like the conference on learning post-retirement and interim execs and organizations like score and, you know, others to, to do that. So I, I want to get into the book and I want to get into fabs in particular. The book is right leader, right time. It is a good overview of fabs. So F A B S I'm going to let you just kind of quickly, we keep saying fabs and the audience is going, what is it? What is it? What is it? When are they going to tell us what it is? So walk us through the, the model for fabs and, um, and we'll just kind of talk about what the book gives us with regard to the model and uh, how people can use it. Sure. So FAB stands for Fixer, Artist, Builder, Strategist. And these are the labels we gave to the four winning leadership styles, talking about process, approach, and system that we saw in exceptional executives. And this is across the board, whether those executives are in commercial businesses or nonprofits, whether they're big or small. So a quick uh, intro into each. Fixer, as the name implies, is the kind of energy where that leader is drawn to turn around. They, they kind of need to run into the burning building. The thing we, we mean with fixer energy is this is a repeat need to keep on running into burning buildings. So, for example, uh, if as we're recording this, Patrick, you know, it was about a month or two ago that FTX, the huge crypto exchange, Mm -hmm. uh, went into bankruptcy and the court appointed a guy named John Ray. And prior to doing FTX, he had been at Enron. So that's the kind of energy, which is you keep on running into the burning building. And once this person at an organization has fixed the problems, they better move on to something new because if they stick around, they're going to start breaking things. Mm. Artist. Artist is the the uh, innovative drive, and and I should say every leader is a combination of all four. Right. We're not trying to pigeonhole anybody into oh you're just this one thing. That's not the case. Any successful leader is a combination yep. of leadership styles and and many capabilities. Um, artist leader though views the world as a blank canvas or a piece of clay, and. The standout example in the world that everybody 
hears about pretty much daily is Elon Musk. Uh, in his best mode, that is the energy that created Tesla and SpaceX and the Boring Company. And it's truly remarkable um, and very disruptive and a renegade kind of energy that, you know, the world thought, well, space travel, that's just the province of, of governments. And uh, Elon stood it on its head, beside the idea that you could privatize uh, space travel or that electric vehicles were going to be a reality. And it's remarkable. I mean, basically every major car manufacturer on the world is is changing around to EV. And I think you can attribute that to Elon. He's also a cautionary example of what happens when a leader tries to be all things to all people, because as you and I are recording, Patrick, he is still mucking it up at Twitter. He, he bought Twitter and uh, that is primarily a, a fixer role. And while he has to solve problems every day in his businesses, that's not his primary energy. It's artist. Um, let me pause there because you said a couple of things that I, I that bear repeating. One is I want to reiterate the importance of the concept that this isn't a night. This isn't to say I'm a fixer and that's all I am and that's what I do and I and I don't do any of the other stuff. It's just who I am. I love the idea that you've got to really a, a, an effective leader really has to know how to move in and out of these modes. But the other term that you used is in our best mode. So you talked about Elon Musk in his best mode, he's creating and innovating and pushing the envelope and, and, and challenging the world to think differently and better in, in his not, maybe not his best mode, you know, the role of a CEO of a, a publicly traded company like this, that's a different sort of thing, or at least it requires the uh, some of the fixing and the building and the strategizing and even the maintaining or administrating role. Yeah, the, it's the, a the, terrible use of his talents. Yeah, it's terrible. Exactly. He, he I, was and deposed. I think he knows that, don't you? I mean, this whole poll yeah, I mean, he put out there on Twitter that said, "Should I leave the CEO role?" Right. He he knows he exactly. needs to. Yeah, it's uh, and he was deposed a couple of years ago in a lawsuit, and he said while he was on the the, the witness stand. He didn't enjoy the CEO role. The thing he loves was is engineering and innovating. Yeah, and and you know, for somebody um, driving as hard as he is, yes, it makes sense that for Tesla and SpaceX, he's he's the CEO. But everybody understands that is a chiefly creative role for him. It's interesting because if you look at SpaceX, he the 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 president of SpaceX, a woman named Gwen Shotwell. She's the example of, of how collaboration between these different styles makes so much sense um, because she allows him this, this artist mode to come to the fore. And so SpaceX, you don't hear about a lot of problems um, because there's this wonderful collaboration going on. Well, and another difference, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is right. Both SpaceX and Tesla were his companies. He created them. Yes. Yes, completely. Twitter yeah. is not the Twitter. That's not the case. So Twitter's one he took over to to fix in in his in you know to in his own proclamation it needed fixing, and so he took that over. But he didn't create that. So that way he didn't birth that, and that I think is a key difference between being the CEO of a Tesla or a SpaceX versus being the CEO of a company you didn't create. You just saw some problems with it and thought, I think I'm going to jump in and deal with this. 
yeah yeah it's 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 very interesting i mean it, it how how it plays out and we, we could go into a lot of this that for example fixer energy is very linear john ray in in ftx right now i guarantee you you are not going to hear that he's working on any other company while he's doing ftx it's, mm -hmm. it's all consuming 24 7 as opposed to artist energy uh elon has to work on multiple companies at once mm -hmm. has mm -hmm. to yeah and uh He's he's hit his limit here with Twitter, but it's not because it's another activity. It's because it's so far out of what he is is really in in the book. We have this phrase "highest and best use." And yep. It's because it's so far removed from his highest and best use. Yeah, and he's not innovating or creating in that space, at least not right now. Not right now, and and that's his excuse for having taken it over. But it's um, it it's really it's interesting because you know he one of the things that inspires me about Elon is this idea of what he calls first principles. And he wants to get down to the physics and the engineering of something. And so, for example, he would talk about a battery and say, well, why does it have to cost this amount when cobalt only costs a fraction and mm -hmm. nickel only costs this, blah, 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 first principles. Well, that's easy to do when you're, when you're thinking about the physics of an electric vehicle or the physics of getting a rocket to Mars. Yeah. But the physics of human beings in a global town hall on Twitter, <laughs> that's a messy. That's a very different thing. You know, the psychology of the planet, that's a messy thing that f physics is not really. Anyway, um, to move on, not keep picking on him. Builder is, now I know everyone engaged in organizations, we're all, we all want to be builders. I, we get that. Builder is a specific label we give to leadership where it is taking the very small, the nascent product service team and taking it from uh, from what is not known to a point of scale or market domination or presence where everybody knows it. And so where you see this kind of energy is, you know, if you have a friend and they started something, a small company, they took it up to size, they got bored and they left and had to do it again. Or in the for-profit world, somebody that creates something and it goes public. And at that point they leave because now that it's a scale, it's just no longer their thing. The builder leader tends to be within an organization that has five people, 10 people, 50 people, maybe a hundred or 150. But you know, there's this phrase Stephen Covey had um, uh, personal span of control and builder and fixer and artist energy. These leaders tend to be running teams where they know everyone on the team. There's a personal relationship and they're counting on that. Mm. There's trust in both directions. That's personal strategist. The, the final leadership style, we, we could have labeled strategist as pilot conductor captain. This is the leader at scale. This is the person who is in charge of thousands or tens of thousands of people or an organization at complexity where you cannot know everyone who is in the organization or on the team. And so it calls for a very different kind of leadership. Mm. All right. So again, fixer, artist, builder, strategist, and I appreciate the, the nuances to those that you chose words here that are fairly self-explanatory, but you gave some nuances to them because they've got their own operational definitions 
in this case. I want to bounce back for a second about, you know, talking about how um, Elon Musk just happened to be the example of how SpaceX and Tesla are about physics and scientific product and, and, and Twitter is about social interaction and, um, you know, virtual town hall, as you put it and knowing where we're effective and where we're not and where, where the absolute waste of energy is. I I'm just thinking about that in particularly the nonprofit sector. Cause that's this, this show is through the social sector lens. So if I look at that through the social sector lens, I'll give you an, I'll give you a personal example. When I was the CEO of a local United way, and I did that four times, twice, twice as a, a permanent CEO and twice as an interim CEO. So four different communities around the country. And I absolutely loved and thrived in that role, partly because it was a community based role. And I could get out, I was talking with my good friend who has a very similar experience in the United Way Network just this morning about how you go into a community because of the United Way brand name and the board sort of political capital that's usually on a United Way board, the CEO coming in has a built-in network. It's easy to connect. You you have a seat at the tables automatically, at least if it's a healthy United Way in the, in the community. And, and I thrived at that. I loved that. You're in Rotary, you're in the chamber meetings, you're at the, you know, focus groups and the think tanks and the, you know, people see you as someone who is part of the leadership fabric of the community and you thrive on that and you base your, your best self on relationships. My last United Way assignment that I took on <laughs> was um, in a state association where I was not the CEO. And even if I had been, it it still would have been different because it was a state association and not a local United Way. My role is to come in and build an HR system and talent development, but everything was internal. I, I didn't have any seats at any community tables here in Columbia, South Carolina. It was, I went to a building. I worked in an HR office. I, everything was insular. And while I thrived at that for a while, I ended up glad that I only committed to a year on that because I don't think I could have gone another year and been fulfilled. I was finding that was not where my best self was able to show up. And I really missed that, that connection. So I'm, I'm trying to think of these other examples of in the social sector where our listeners might relate to this idea of you know, I was really good at running a Habitat for Humanity, you know, where you're gauging a lot of volunteers and you're working in the community to change systems and affordable housing. But when I came over here to the Red Cross and, and you know, it was about disaster relief and it was about these things, something about the dynamic and, and what was required of leadership just didn't, you know, I wasn't at my best. I don't know. I'm, I'm, you're, think, you're, I'm, I'm thinking well, out you're, loud you're here. Bringing but, up, <laughs> you're the perfect example. The perfect example is you're saying this, it reminds me. So we interviewed a lot of leaders um, uh, for the book. And we also interviewed a number of organizational psychologists because, well, we we had to ask them the question, are we crazy? I mean, do you, do you think that this, that this concept here of these four styles makes sense or not, right? It started in that way before you get, you know, the science of, of validating these things 
around large numbers of people taking surveys. And one of the psychologists we interviewed, Patrick, it just it comes to mind what he said. He said, he said, you can adjust yourself to a point and and you can try to play all of these roles you are not until it breaks. And he then used a phrase we thought was <clears throat> kind of cute. He said, you have to be spiky. And what he meant by that is that if you were looking at a chart or a graph of all the abilities and traits that you're looking for from team members, they're going to be different. They have to be, and nobody is great at everything. And so you or I are going to be spiky in different ways. We're going to show up with these, with, with a few of these abilities that are kind of off the charts better than everybody else, but in different ways. And that's how we're, that's what makes for successful teams is these this collaboration, this complementary ability coming together. So you're the perfect example of this, which is you're highly competent. So technically, yes, you could do the other role and tasks um, because of that. But at some point, it's just because it's not bringing you joy. And frankly, you wouldn't be the best person in the world at it because it's not bringing you joy. Uh, there would be a movement at some point where you had to get away from it. Um, I like that term spiky. We, um, we use a, a number of assessments in our coaching work, as you might imagine. And one of them, we, we do use the DISC assessment. A lot of our listeners are familiar with DISC. And DISC has, you know, there's lots of different versions of the assessment, but DISC has what's called a stressor profile, where they'll show you your DISC profile. So D-I-S-C, it's the, it's the model by William Marston formed in 1928. It's changed. Um, the, the labels have changed a little bit, but you know, like you have fixer, artist, builder, strategist, disc has the high D is the think of the D words, decisive driver, um, daring, uh, directive. And so we think of that bold, you know, big picture, let's go do it. Leader, a very directive, very outgoing. Then you have I, that's the influence. So they're all about the people, inspiration, influence. Uh, the C's, they're very conscientious, careful, cautious, calculating. They're your detail people. You find a lot of C's in, say, accounting, for example, or, you know, that's kind of systems level work. And then you have S, and the S words are usually words like systems-based, um, stabilizing s people are very nurturing they like team and so you've got these different things and the idea is to not look at this and go well look at my profile i'm a high d and low c i guess that just means i can't do detail and we tell people no yeah. that's not what it means is it's not a competency model it's a comfort model right. it's a default where where you are at your best and the stressor is they'll show your disc profile and the stressor one is right next to it. And if those two are extremely different, you got a problem because the stressor says that the natural one says, this is my natural disc. And the stressor says, this is what my disc looks like when I'm under stress, when there's high pressure involved. And if those, if you're like a super high D and, and low C normally, but in stress mode, you go to high S and your D drops down dramatically and they're very different. You got to be cautious of that because you are not, you're, you're not, your environment is not conducive to you being your best self on a consistent basis. 
So you just need to either get out of your environment, change roles. Something's got to give because it's not sustainable. Yes. Yeah. We're, we're going to see, I mean, we're, we've launched fabs leadership assessment. It, it's a quick three minute, um, uh, survey that, that will give someone a result. It's at rightleader.com. We're going to see, I, I suspect that fabs is an overlay. Um, it, it's not that in any way it's contradictory. I think it's going to be additive to things like disc. I think so. It, 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 it appears and to be, we're big fans of Colby yeah. as well. And, and, um, uh, you know, we, we aspire, <laughs> I'll say we aspire that, that there's enough evidence that builds up where we can confidently say, well, okay, we see, for example, fixer and builder modes tend to be linear. Uh, folks with that primary leadership style drive tend to work on one project organiz or organization at a time. Artists and strategists tend to be more parallel, mm. um, multiple projects at a time. We're going to see how much science we can get around it. That'll be exciting to see and to watch going into it. Um, so let, let's get to this. I want to, uh, we'll, we'll start to wind this down a little bit. The, the, what is the takeaway? I mean, the leaders listening to this show have done probably assessment after assessment. We use a lot of them in our coaching world. So fabs is another one, right? I'm, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here. What, uh, here's my first question for you, actually, before I get to that one. Um, you mentioned a while ago that fabs, these four styles are the ones that you found more consistently in what you called the winning organizations. I think that's the term you used. Is that right? Uh, winning organizations and winning careers. Yes. Yeah. So how did you define those? How, how, what, what define when you say these are the styles that showed up the most in the winning organizations or the winning careers, what were some of the factors that um, sort of operationally defined what winning looked like? Well, that's a great question. And, and part of, you know, I'd said a while back that the majority of executives are, are having these leadership journeys that are not extraordinary. They're, they're okay. They're not great. It tends to be that high performing leaders are held more to account and have more measurability in their track records and therefore the organizations. And so, for example, Someone in, you know, builder mode shows up and says, well, I had this division at a company and I took it, you know, from 5 million to 120 million in three years. Okay. That's a metric, right? And, and you know, what, what you tend to see if someone is not exactly crushing it is they'll say, well, I managed um, six people, um, you know, for the past five years. Mm -hmm. Okay. What happened? Did, did the organization grow? Did you become more efficient? Are there any metrics? Was there anything really being held to account for you or your team? And you tend to see with uh, the more mediocre results that there's no, there was no real accountability there. Interesting. So somewhat subjective, but that's an interesting framework. And I won't go into it. Well, we it. want to get to objectivity. That's right. And that is a mark of, of exceptional yeah. uh, leaders, which is they have metrics. And so for example, in, in fixer mode, uh, I'll go back to John Ray. He was at Enron. Now he's at FTX. Well, at Enron, they're going to talk about the recovery of of assets. You know how much money was was saved for investors. So even when something is failing at FTX, within a couple of days, John Ray and his team were talking about uh, already having recovered assets, cash 
to go back to um, account holders. You need that for accountability. Yeah. yeah. So what's the takeaway? Someone someone goes and says, "All right, I took the Fabs assessment, and yep, just as expected, I'm a I'm a builder. That's me. It's always always has been." And yep, affirmed. Check. What's the takeaway? What a lot what, of what's the how, do, how do people I'll leverage you, this? I'll give you a couple. One is is that um, average leaders try to be they tend to be. Uh, all things to all people. And that doesn't work for anybody. This sounds obvious, but if you actually look at a lot of, of resumes or track records, that's exactly what people are doing. A lot of people do, and it doesn't lead to great success. Great success comes out of doubling down, mm. of figuring out uh, what is your highest and best use and ignoring a whole lot of of everything else to go focus on that highest and best use. I love that. See, I love that phrasing just like a while ago, you said being in our best mode. I think for me, that's the big takeaway is how do we, how do we stay in our space of highest and best use, not stay in our lane. That's different, but staying in the space where our highest and best use can be leveraged. But I will say this and I'll get your take on it. I would also always tend to want to say while continuing to develop the deficiencies. So just because my highest and best use is, is that of a creator um, as a leader, I, I also do want to do well at the scaling. I, I want to do well at being able to solve problems and fix things when they're broken. I want to be able to do those things. So I want to develop those spaces but there's a fine line between spending time developing those spaces and wasting time in those spaces because your bandwidth is now not being spent on your, your best, um, your best mode. How do you, how do you reconcile those two things? I would say that one of the other qualities of exceptional leaders is they collaborate on steroids. Mm. They, they become force multipliers because they're, 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 they're multiplying what they've got with everyone around them. And, Part of what you know our our journey is in career and life and leadership is gaining confidence, and and that's not only so that you can become better at what you do and to reject a whole lot of things at which you're not great, but it's also then to be able to recognize everybody around you that their competence and genius and and skills can come to the fore and they're going to be far better than you at the things at which you're not great. And if you really want to be part of a winning team, whether your role is is director and, and in charge or someone who's on the team, then the more that you are able to collaborate and and help the genius of other people around you, the further the organization is going to go. That's uh, so well said and a, and a great response to that question. Um, surround yourself, um, not by a bunch of people that are just like you. You know, let's, let's, we're building a team here. We see it all the time. We see, um, nonprofit teams, for example, tend to have lots of SCs on them. S's and C's I'm, I'm using the disc assessment in this case, you know, if I were looking at, you know, fixer, artist, builder, and strategist who maybe uh, the b- best overlay I might find on what I'm thinking of it would be strategists. Um, and, but, but in any case, if you've got a whole team full of strategists, then where are the innovators? Who's, who's pushing the envelope and, and who's really good at stepping in and, and being that problem solver and being the fixer and who, so 
we see teams in the nonprofit sector full of, of S's and C's. S's because stable, nurturing systems. This is why we're in the social sector. You find a lot of nurses and teachers in the S world. Um, and so it's just, it's conducive. The, the nonprofit space is conducive to people who lean that way. You don't often find a lot of high D's. And so when you've got a whole team full of people and no one is the one that's being the the driver, the dis, the decisive, daring, bold, let's move, let's go, then you've got a dysfunctional team, vice versa. If if you got a bunch of commanders all thinking their way is right and you don't have anybody checking the details and uh, then you've got a dysfunctional team. And I Fabs is no different from what from what I can see here is that you don't want an entire leadership culture based on just one of these particular things. This all, this strikes me as, as more situational leadership than other assessments I've seen. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. Very situational. Yeah. And, and part of it is, is that a lot of organizations, they tend to get very static and stagnant and it mm. doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. But yeah. the, the modern age, we, we couldn't have written this book 30 years ago not possible. Yeah. It, it's really only because of the way the world is now that you can have more call it transportability in your career individually and the way that the organization can look at the world to take advantage of resources that are not necessarily all, uh, you know, this old idea of lifetime employment. Mm. That's kind of gone. Do you, do you, that word transportable actually made me think of another word, which is transferable. And when you're talking about situational leadership, being a great fixer and having the, even this, the drive to be a fixer is not transferable to every situation. You know, a board that wants a CEO that says, look, we're, we're cooking along here. We don't have any broken part. We're, we're the lead, we're the state of the art. We need someone to now scale. You know, and so the fixer is not the person because you don't want someone to come in and just wreak havoc in an organization that has a high performing, strong thing going on. And so not all of these are transferable. And I think that's I think that's one of the lessons you're trying to get across is understanding how to continue, how to make sure that we're living in a space um, where where our best and what did you say? Our uh, our best highest and, highest, and best use. Yeah, yeah. Highest and best use. Yeah. Man, fascinating stuff. And we could, we could go deeper and deeper. That, that's the only thing about these kinds of conversations, Bob, is, you know, an hour goes by and you're like, man, we just started. Like we, we just started this conversation, but uh, get the book uh, folks, because uh, again, I've, I've read part of it. I'm not done with it yet, but it is really fascinating. And it does, it makes you pause and think about where is my highest and best used and not just which one of these am I, it's not just the point of saying, Oh, great. Look at me. I'm, I'm a, I'm a B <laughs> that's me. I'm that's my letter. Um, I'll carry that flag proudly. It really is about understanding even I'm, I'm, I'm even sitting here, Bob, thinking about, you know, the what's next, what's past and what's next in my leadership. I've had to move through these fabs in different ways. I'm much more the artist now because I'm in business for myself, trying to come up with innovative and creative ways to deliver what I deliver. But you know, the time's going to come where I've got to be that builder. You know, I've thought of, you know, how do I scale this business to the next level? Anyway, I'm, I'm just, 
I'm seeing all the different directions we can go. Go to rightleader.com. The assessment is there. Is the book available there too as well? I know it's on Amazon because that's where I got it. But rightleader.com for everything? Uh, yes. It, it's The book is in all the usual places. Yep, yep. Barnes & Noble and Target. And, yep. So check and, it out. Uh, Amazon. Let me ask you a couple of questions to wrap this up, Bob, that I like to ask all my guests because I love the stories. And the first one is, um, who is a leader um, uh, or two in your life or career that you would say have had some of the greatest impact on your leadership and your point of view on leadership and why? Well, one of the my, my greatest mentors and, and leaders I looked up to is a guy named Jim Camp. And uh, he was a negotiations coach, probably the best in the world. And, and that led to publication of the first book I worked on called Start With No. Mm. He, but he was just an incredible leader. Um, and he was behind the scenes helping a lot of companies um, because he created a sy- systematic way of negotiating to make it easier for people to do that. And he mm. was a remarkable person. Where would he land on fabs? Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. Um, Jim, Jim was primarily in coach mode as opposed to operating mode, but he would have been builder. Mm. Uh, he would have been builder for sure. But his his legacy, there are just thousands of of uh, business leaders and organizations around the world that benefited because of Jim. Wow. Wow. I'll have to go back. I'll have to go back and look at that book too. Start with no. Um, last question for you, uh, Bob, you're given 20 seconds to, uh, the audience and the audience is all the leaders in the world, people who are in leadership roles and they're there to hear the Robert Jordan, um, number one principle or tenet of leadership to always keep with you and always keep in mind. What is that for you? Exceptional leaders reject what is not for their highest and best use. (laughs) That is very easy to say. I know it's easy to say, but I'm not trying to be glib. It is that as we all go through our journey, our career, this leadership progression that we have, that as you gain confidence, it's good over time to tend to reject more of what is not for your highest and best use. And it's clearly what we see among exceptional leaders. They have that ability to do that. They have more success that way. They have a lot more enjoyment and they're producing far better results for the organizations they're with. Man, that is such a great way of framing that. We talk about that in strategy when I am helping organizations with strategic planning. We say that strategy is as much about determining what not to focus on as it is what to focus on because it's a trade-off there's only so much bandwidth so much energy so much competence talents capacity we got to use it where it's max so i love the idea of being courageous enough aware enough bold enough to say no to the things and 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 remove yourself from those spaces where your highest and best use just aren't they're not given that that chance to shine um so i love that bob thanks so much for coming on the show this was fantastic very generous of you to share this with us and you've you've teased it out. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Patrick. I'm honored to be with you. All right, folks, uh, go get the book, go get the assessment done. See where you land, reach out, let me know kind of what you think of it. Go to rightleader.com to learn more about uh, Robert Jordan and his work at interim execs. 
And in the meantime, lead on. 